Well, as I mentioned in the children's message, our sermon text for day, today is the account of the transfiguration of Jesus. And we're going to look at it in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. So if you're able, please rise again for the hearing of God's holy word. And we read from Matthew 17, in Jesus' name. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking, when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and they were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Heavenly Father, thanks again for today. Thank you for this Transfiguration Sunday where we get to see Jesus on the mountain with his divine glory shining through. Thank you for all that this communicates to us. As we today look at this passage, I pray that you would show us our sin, bring us to repentance, Lord, and point us to Christ and his finished work for us. By your word, ready us for your service, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Our passage here in Matthew chapter 17 starts out with a time marker. It says, after six days. So we have to take a look back and find out what it was that happened six days before the events of Matthew chapter 17. So if you look back to Matthew chapter 16, the previous chapter, we'll find Jesus and the disciples in the region of Caesarea Philippi. And while they're there, Jesus asks them, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Really, he's asking, what do people say about me? Who do they say I am. The disciples give some responses that they've heard. Some people think you're, you're John the Baptist. Other people think you might be Elijah. Other people think you might be Jeremiah, or, or maybe even you might be that prophet who would be like Moses that God had promised. The opinions of the people kind of run the gamut. They're, they're all over the place, but pretty much everyone can agree there's something special with this Jesus. He seems to be someone sent by God as God's messenger, but nobody's really quite figured out exactly who he is yet. Jesus then points the question to the disciples, not what do the crowds say about me, but who do you think I am? And not surprisingly, Peter is the one who speaks up. He confesses in that passage that Jesus is the Christ, and he says that he is the Son of the living God. Peter, at least in this moment, he gets it. He knows exactly who Jesus is. And he confesses Jesus to be the Christ, a word that we so very often just blow past when we're reading Scripture, as if it was just part of Jesus' name and, and not important. But that word Christ, it's a, it's a title, and it's a very significant and important title, because Christ in Greek is the same as the word Messiah, Mashiach, in Hebrew. 
So by confessing that Jesus is the Christ, Peter is saying that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He also says that he's the son of the living God, that he is God in the flesh. These confessions of Peter are both absolutely correct and incredibly profound. Jesus goes on and he says, after this, uh, Peter, on this, your confession on this rock, I'm going to build my church. Six days after this, amazing confession of Peter, an amazing promise of Jesus, we have the account of the transfiguration on the mountain, which amongst other things would have served as confirmation to Peter, James, and John, those three disciples who were with him, that what Peter said just six days before was absolutely true. Peter confessed that Jesus was Messiah and God, and now these three disciples, they get to see a glimpse of the divine glory shining through Jesus. They get a taste of the true glory of the living God who is right there with them. The disciples don't just get to see the divine glory of Jesus shining through, but they also have Peter's confession confirmed by two pillars of the Old Testament church. We have Moses, the man that God had used to bring his people out of the promised land, the man that God had given the Ten Commandments, that he had given the law to. And then we have Elijah, one of God's faithful prophets, a man that was so faithful he didn't even have to face death, but instead he was taken up by God to be in heaven with him. So here we have a representative of both the law and the prophets testifying to who Jesus is. And the disciples, they get even more than that because God the Father shows up in a bright cloud to interrupt Peter while he was saying something foolish, also not surprising for Peter. And he proclaims, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. I don't know how much more evidence of who Jesus truly is could have been given to these three disciples. They saw with their own eyes the divine glory of God shining through in Jesus. They saw those greats of the Old Testament, the representative of the law and the prophets, which summed up all of the Old Testament. And they heard one of those rare occasions where God the Father spoke directly rather than through means saying that Jesus was his beloved son. This is a pretty amazing scene that we have. We have Jesus transfigured. As I mentioned in the children's message, that word transfigured is the Greek metamorpho, which is where we get our English word metamorphosis. But Jesus doesn't change into something new. He instead just lets his divine nature shine through so that they can see. We also have those greats confirming who Jesus is and that rare occasion of God the Father speaking directly. That being said, what we have here in the transfiguration account of Jesus, it, it, while it's amazing and miraculous, it doesn't really match the way that Jesus has presented himself to the disciples and other people that came to see and hear him. The Bible makes clear that if you were to judge Jesus by physical appearance alone, you would say Jesus looked like any other person on the street. You know, many well-meaning and, and pious artists and movie producers have, have given us an image of Jesus that's a little bit too good to be true. Uh, has anybody seen the movie Jesus of Nazareth from 1977? 
I've got a couple folks that have seen it before. I, I don't remember if, if you noticed this, but there was something very unique about the uh, Caucasian blue-eyed Jesus in that movie. And it's not that he was Caucasian or blue-eyed. He didn't blink for the entire film. The director made sure that he wouldn't blink and always had his eyes open to, to communicate his divinity, that he would always have his eyes open. Many uh, portraits of Jesus portray him as a man with a neatly combed beard, with every hair in place, never with a speck of dirt on his robes, and with chiseled good looks. We've also got portraits of Jesus where he has a glowing halo or some eerie glow behind him. You see, these depictions of Jesus, they're, they're fine so long as they help us to remember what it is that Jesus came to do, as long as they remind us that he came to die so that we might uh, be saved from sin, death, and the devil. But we need to be very careful and not imagine that any of these portrayals actually looked like what Jesus looked like. You see, if you went back to the first few decades of uh, the first century in the land of Israel, you wouldn't be able to pick Jesus out of a crowd. He would have looked like everyone else. In fact, he blended in with his disciples so well that when Judas went to betray Jesus, he had to go give Jesus a kiss to identify him so the guards would know who he was. See, Jesus looked just like everyone else, and he lived a life that was much like everyone else's, but did it without sin. He would eventually be put on trial just as anyone else would. He would be condemned with common criminals. He would be executed by crucifixion, which was common in those days. Everything about the life of Jesus was common and ordinary. As the prophet said in Isaiah 53, 2, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Even though didn't, Jesus didn't look like much and no one would have picked him out of a crowd as anything special by looks alone, this traveling Jewish rabbi was and is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is the Almighty. He is the Son of God in the flesh. Everything that resides in God resides in this seemingly ordinary man. It's incredibly important that we remember and keep both of these things in mind. That Jesus was both fully man and fully God. As it says in the Nicene Creed, he was God of God, light of light, very God of very God. He was begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. And also as it confesses that he was incarnate of the Holy Spirit by the Virgin Mary and was made truly man. We can't forget either side of this. But we must always remember that Jesus is fully human, just like you and me, and fully God. You see, Jesus took on ordinary humanity in order to save ordinary human beings. It means Jesus came to save sinners. If you're a sinner, if you struggle with this life, if you ever feel lost, if you ever wonder how in the world, a holy and righteous God could be interested in a lowly person like you, then know that Jesus came for you. If, on the other hand, you think you're in pretty good shape, you think you've done a pretty good job of getting your life in order, 
you think you're a pretty holy, just, and good person. If you think that, for the most part, then Jesus isn't for you. Jesus came for ordinary humans, and that means he came to save lost sinners. Jesus himself said in Mark chapter 2, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. And in Luke 19, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. You see, although Jesus never sinned, he became a sinner. And he did this by lifting your sin away from you and bearing it himself. He did this for all people, and in so doing, he became the greatest sinner that this world has ever seen. And this inspired the Apostle Paul to write in 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, Jesus carried your sin to a cross outside the city of Jerusalem. And there on that cross, he endured the full punishment for your, for your sin, every last bit of it. His suffering began in the Garden of Gethsemane as he sweat drops of blood for you. It continued at an unfair trial and in unjust beatings and floggings and in an execution by crucifixion. It especially continued in the moment of his forsakenness on the cross when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it continued until Jesus issued that cry of victory and triumph, It is finished. Because with that cry, he signaled that your entire sin debt was paid in full. By by grace and through faith, You are adopted into God's family. And because of Christ's perfect life and all atoning death, you have become righteous in God's eyes. Jesus showed us who he truly is with his transfiguration. His ordinary ordinary appearance showed us that he was fully and truly man. And his transfigured appearance showed us that he is fully and truly God. You see, this revelation would have helped to serve the disciples as as they went through the difficult things that would soon come. It would remind them and sustain them through the events of Jesus' passion. And it should also remind us, as Christians, that Jesus, the eternal God-man, fully and truly paid for every one of your sins. The transfiguration of our Lord also serves to remind us that there's one more transfiguration yet to come. We have one more metamorphosis in our future. You see, Jesus truly died on the cross, and his body was truly laid in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. But the grave didn't have the power to hold him, and he rose again. You see, his resurrection is the sign, it is the the promise that the day will come when Jesus will return, and all people will see him in his eternal glory. On that final day, all the dead will be raised and all who believe in him will be transfigured. We who believe will no longer be mortal, but we shall be clothed in immortality. The corruption of this sinful world will pass away and we will be citizens of a new creation where we see our Savior face to face. It's then that we will fully know the inheritance which already belongs to us as adopted children of God. You see, this this Transfiguration Sunday 
it serves for us as a hinge between the seasons of Epiphany, which is all about Jesus being revealed, and Lent as we walk toward the cross. Starting next week, we have those Gesema Sundays, which are so much fun for everybody to try to pronounce on Sunday mornings. But those Gesema Sundays, they should remind us that Easter is coming. They lead us right into Lent, right to Ash Wednesday. So really, the Gesema Sundays serve as the beginning of our annual pilgrimage and memory of Jesus carrying our sin to the cross. As we make this annual trek, we repent and we look forward in faith to that final transfiguration, our transfiguration and our resurrection unto life and life eternal. Heavenly Father, thank you for this transfiguration passage where the divine nature of Christ shows through, where we get to see just a glimpse of Jesus's true nature as fully God and fully man. And thank you that Christ became man to die in the place of human beings and that he was fully God, able to pay the price for all of our sin. Comfort us and remind us with those words constantly. Help us to look ahead to that day when Christ returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. And help us to look forward to that day with joy, knowing that it is the day when all things will be made new and sin and suffering and pain and death will all pass away forever, and we will be with you in eternity. We pray these things, Lord, in your holy and precious name. Amen.